Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome back to Dogman Radio. I'm Scott Eklund, your host, and I'm sitting in with me is Chris Fetters. And uh, we're talking about, this is part two of our podcast, um, and it's it's related to yesterday's podcast, which is our look back at the season countdown that Chris Fetters and I did, starting with uh, the number 99, 99 days until the start of the season. I, do you remember, you know, I should have looked this up before, What do you remember what date that we started this on what what day it was it was in early july if or i'm sorry early uh june if i remember correctly oh yeah no i'd have to honestly yeah i'd, I'd have to go back and look um yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was uh well was i should have looked it up days from uh, montana or yeah i guess uh no would that have been zero i can't remember but it's no, yeah. it's been a long time yeah yeah but um i mean it it just it was kind of a labor of love and hate at the same time. Actually, it started on May 28th. That was the first day, Chris, that you did it. So, okay. Wow. Yeah, and that was number 99. And why don't we start off with that one? Just give some give some love to the number that uh, you know, kind of started it all off, the number 99. Lots of guys from that from that uh, number that wore the number 99, but the two that you featured were Tank Johnson and Greg Gaines. Two defensive linemen who made huge impacts during their time at the University of Washington. Yeah, and then I think as we go on, obviously, if we continue to to bring this back from year to year, a guy like Fatui Tuatele will be uh, prominently featured as well. But yeah, Greg Gaines, Tank Johnson, uh, even guys like Robin Earl back in the day, which was the number one. You know, I kind of mentioned in the in the previous one about uh, you know Jim Moore, the defensive back, wearing ninety six. Well, Robin Earl was a running back, but he wore ninety nine. So go figure. There's just some weirdness yeah. uh, around that number. Well, we mentioned it yesterday. Yeah, yeah we it's, mentioned kind of, yesterday. it's kind of a, a weird, mystique kind of thing. But, um, yeah, clearly, I think, the, the, you know, Elisara, Greg Gaines, Tank Johnson, Tuatele, Robin Earl, uh, Dean Browning. Um, these are some of the guys. But, obviously, I think Gaines and, and, and Johnson are, are probably the ones that stick in the in the consciousness most in terms of not just what they did at, at Washington, but what they also did in the NFL or, or are currently doing in the NFL, if you're yeah. talking about Greg Gaines with the uh, L.A. Rams. And Tank Johnson was a guy, he came out of Arizona. He was a volleyball player, if I remember correctly. This is true. Yeah, no, yeah. He, was a, he was a phenomenal athlete. I mean, can you imagine him spiking a ball at 280 pounds and – yeah, but yeah, he was a guy that that obviously he wasn't it wasn't a football first thing with him. He was a he was a guy that had played other sports and then came to football late 
and then uh, obviously really really blossomed when he was at Washington. The number when we, when I, we, when oh, we knew ahead. him as Terry. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Terry Johnson. Yep. Um, one number that I regretted that you got to write about and and I did not was the number ninety. And I started with eighty nine. So for people who maybe didn't hear last yesterday's uh, podcast, um, Chris did the odd numbered uh, tens. So he did nineties, seventies, fifties, thirties, and teens. And I did the the even ones. So the eighties, sixties, forties, twenties, single digits. So, um, and Chris, but you got, you got the chance to write about number 90 and probably I think, especially in a lot of people's minds that are your and my age and above would consider Steve Entman, the greatest Husky football player of all time. Yeah. I I don't think there's much debate on that. I think there's obviously some that would, that would have their favorites, you know, whether it, you know, whether it might be like a Warren moon or, um, gosh, I don't know, Napoleon Kaufman, maybe Rick uh, Redman. He was, yeah, Rick Red- he was I mean, a if big you time guy went back, you know, yeah. Bob Florette, um, Hugh McElhenney in the fifties, obviously. And, mm-hmm. but you know, it's interesting that that number itself, obviously Entman is the highlight guy in there for sure. But Ron Holmes, holy moly, oh, you know, yeah. all American. I mean, he, he was a big time defensive player. Maybe the, maybe the guy that was the precursor to a guy like Entman. So, yeah, it was interesting to to write about that number. And then um, the guy who might only be known for one play or remembered for one play, but Kai Ellis with the, yep. with the 2002 Apple Cup. Yeah. Correctly. Yeah. Um, you know, the the one with the triple overtime and the and the backward pass and all that stuff. I mean, he was the one that made that happen. And, you know, his nickname was The Creature. And if mm-hmm. anybody watched him play, you'd see, you know, 6'5", 250, Ran like a deer, was a phenomenal athlete. So uh, yeah, that that particular number had had definitely a number of of guys in it, including current player uh, Voy Tanufi, who um, obviously I think is a freshman, and he's coming he's coming along pretty quickly too. He's going to be on this list in future years, I think. Oh, absolutely. From yeah, everything I've Tani, seen. Tani Tupo, who yeah. I know you know very very well, Scott, and uh, you know, since he was ten. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, the, the one thing I want to get back to Steve Entman for those who don't know, and maybe they weren't, there's probably fans who weren't even born by the time, uh, he was, you know, by when he was making plays at the university of Washington, the guy went on to win the Lombardi outland and Morris awards, Morris trophy. Uh, that's the one that's voted on by their peers for, uh, the top interior, or I'm sorry, top linemen on either side of the ball, um, both defensive and offensive voted on by the peers of the Pac-12 teams that they play against as the pl- the best player at their position. And he won that Morris Trophy. And then he went on to win L- the Lombardi and the Outland Trophy. And he also, what did he finish, fifth in the Heisman Trophy? Or fourth, fourth in the Heisman Trophy voting. Yeah, I, I mean, think that's he, correct. Yeah, he was just ridiculous. 134 tackles, 36.5 tackles for loss, 14 sacks, but... You know, a lot of people talk, Chris, uh, yesterday you talked about Gabe Rivera for Texas Tech as the best defensive lineman you had ever seen uh, play the University of Washington. I saw Leroy Selman play in person one time and thought by far he was the best player I had ever seen until I saw Steve Entman play. Steve Entman is the best 
defensive player I've ever seen play. And, and you're talking about somebody who's 50 years old. So I don't go back all the way until the, you know, into the, into the forties and fifties watching guys play. But, but, you know, I, I don't know if there's been a more impactful defensive lineman in college football than Steve Entman, because he is really the one that made that motor and that engine go in that 1991 defense that is so legendary for Husky fans, but also fans across the country who remember that. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, obviously the pack, the pack 12 now, but the pack 10 pack eight, whatever, you know, iteration of the, uh, of the conference you want to talk about. They've obviously had a ton of amazing, um, defensive linemen that have come through. And I'm sure uh, Emin is, is the one that really highlights it. I think the only guy, honestly, that I can think of that's in the same conversation is a guy that I really remember very vividly and a guy who, you know, did it at multiple levels was Terrell Suggs. Um, oh, yeah, I, that's definitely. just a guy that's really stood out for me when he played at ASU. Um, he was an absolute beast coming out of high school. Um you know, so I mean, yeah, there's there's certainly guys that have gone on, especially if you want to talk about the kids from Southern California that have done some amazing things. But for some reason, Entman and Suggs have always been in my mind has been like two of the top guys that I've ever seen play in the conference. Uh, moving on to the 80s, the number 88 uh, that I had, uh, I had the 80s, as we mentioned earlier. And um, the, the one that kind of stuck out for me uh, with eight was 88. That's with Austin Safarian Jenkins, probably the most recognizable tight end in Washington in Washington's history, at least their more recent history. Um, he was used quite a bit as a as a split out guy, as more of a receiver than he was a tight end. Ended up uh, with 146 receptions for 1,840 yards and 21 touchdowns. Also received uh, the Mackey Award, which is for the top tight end in the country every year, and he received that after his junior season. And uh, he eventually went on to be drafted uh, in the 20 uh, in the what was it? What was it? First round? No, yes. Yeah, sixth selection of the second round, actually, by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 2014. Um, you know, d- kind of had a checkered up and down uh, career in the NFL, but uh, played for what, three or four teams and and uh, is now I don't know. I need to follow up with him, see what he's what he's doing now. He had some inner demons that he was dealing with did enter um, alcohol rehab for a little while. And, but from the sounds of it, last I had heard, he had started to get things back together. So we'll, we'll have to see on him, but the, the, you know, as, as great as Austin Severian Jenkins was Marquise Cooper is the 88 that really stuck out to me, Chris. And, and I think it was more, I mean, he was a very good player for Washington during his time, but I think what stood out more was what happened to him and how his life ended uh, once he got to the NFL. Yeah, it was tragic. I, I don't remember a ton of the details other than it happened at sea. And I don't, was it ever fully explained? No, it, well, basically, um, I, I, cause to do this story, I kind of, um, had to do some research on what ended up happening. So Marquise Cooper was a linebacker. He was playing for the New Orleans Saints and, uh, was a, was a pretty good linebacker for them for the one or two years that he was there. I'm sorry the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I'm sorry. I don't know why I had the saints in my head. He was drafted in the third round by the, by the uh, Buccaneers and um, went out fishing with um, uh, a teammate, Corey, Corey Smith and a couple guys from, I think they played at South Florida um, that they kind of got to know. And they were out in the Gulf of Mexico and the waves had gotten so big. It overturned their, 
their relatively small fishing boat that they had gone out in and the players had it, it had capsized and all the players had had climbed up on the on the boat but it was the underside of the boat because the boat was turned over and um three of the guys ended up um drowning a diamond dying of exposure and unfortunately marquise cooper was one there was one that survived and i don't uh, i did uh nick's nick's i don't know how to say his name nick schuyler nick schuyler uh he ended up um um he ended up uh being the one survivor of the of the of the um tragedy the accident whatever you want to call it um the others um several of them i don't know if they've ever even found the bodies the other three guys uh, because they were floated they floated away and were presumed dead um he he uh cooper passed away nine days before his 27th birthday so uh just a tough way to have a great husky and have his life ended and, and it was in early march that that happened so you can imagine how cold some of those waters were yeah the the two things that really stick out with me with marquise cooper is the first thing that that I'm thinking about it now was um, I remember talking to him and and Kim Grinnell to talk to him as well during the recruiting process. And we, you know, we wondered why an Arizona kid would want to come to Washington. And um, he actually talked about the fishing and how he was a huge fisherman. And I was thinking how at the time, how is a kid from Arizona a huge, why is he so into fishing? And so that that always struck me as very unique mm-hmm. about Marquise Cooper, and it again it, a very tragic part of the of uh, a uh, uh, part of the puzzle, and that he just loved to fish, and that was the thing that, yeah. that he really truly enjoyed. He really really liked to go out and fish and and do that thing, and so um, that was the first thing. And then the second one I remember is probably the the one play that I remember from him at Washington was in the. I believe it was the 2003 Apple Cup. Yep. He had the pick six to to kind of seal the win. 38 uh, yards. Yep. Yeah. So that was, uh, uh, you know, he was just really starting to come into his own at that point. And, and I think it was that season where it was like the NFL team started really going, wait a second, here's a really athletic, rangy, big guy that we can move around as a linebacker. We can even maybe put him at end if we need to. Uh, a, a t- quick twitch guy to rush the passer and these types of things. And so I, it, it was ultimately super tragic because I think, you know, Cooper was, was a guy that he hadn't, you know, he'd played some football obviously at the high school level, but it really felt like there was a lot of miles still left on the tire, so to speak. And, and he was just really starting to scratch the surface of his potential. The uh, 1991 team had some really good tight ends, including a freshman by the name of Mark Bruner. But Aaron Pierce was a guy who always stuck out to me as a guy who was who could get it done both as a blocker and as a receiver. Ended up being drafted by the New New York Giants. He wore the number 86. Chris, what do you remember? Uh, what do you remember about Aaron Pierce during during his time at Washington? I thought he wore 84. Uh, did I write down the wrong number? I might have written down the wrong number. Whatever number oh, no. it was. I thought he was. I thought he was. An <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. He did wear number 84. That's my bad. I did. I did have him in mind though. Number 84. Rod Jones is another guy who stood out with that number. Tony Roten. Those are all some really good tight ends. But Aaron Pierce was the one who kind of stuck out to me. 47 receptions, 584 yards, and five touchdowns in four seasons. But that was a a time when Washington didn't throw the ball a ton, and when they did, it threw it outside to the wide receivers. 
Yeah, I was gonna say I, you you were speaking of eighty sixes, and I the the I one don't know guy why I had eighty six down. It was eighty four. The got, one guy I remember I, in eighty six was in the in the first part of the the first podcast that we did. Um, I, I mentioned the eighty three Michigan game at in Seattle, and uh, and Steve Fleur, you know, bringing the team back to a touchdown, and the two point conversion was thrown to a guy named Larry Michael who wore 86 and that, and that's the only thing I can remember uh, that he ever did. And I, I'm sure he had a fine career at that point, but you know, I was still young. I was, I think I was barely in high school at that time. And I didn't, I think everyone was so in shock by the, the game itself and the way that it ended. I don't think people really remember who caught that pass. And um, so that was, an interesting piece of history too, but yeah, Aaron Pierce was a phenomenal tight end. Um, probably one of the first ones that I really remember him and, and Mark Bruner, you know, those were some really, really big ones. Uh, Rod Jones was another 84. That was yeah. a big time, uh, tight end as well. So yeah, you're looking at that, you know, that 83, 84, 85 kind of group when you, you know, you look at Cam Cleland more 85, um, you know, that 80, yeah, it's weird though, you know, because then the 87s, you know, Kate Otten obviously is the recent one that's mm-hmm. a big time 87. Kevin Ware wore 87 for those people that remember that back in the day during kind of the, the new Heisel transition. That was always a, uh, I always thought that was a really fascinating story in the sense that he was getting recruited by both Washington and Colorado. And he happened to be on his official visit to Colorado when new Heisel broke the news that he was going to Washington and, and as the wife, as, as the old wives tale goes, there was only one guy that was grinning on the inside during the official visit to, to Colorado. And that was Kevin Ware because everyone else was like, well, what are we going to do? And Kevin Ware is like, I know where I'm going now. I'm going to Washington. <laughs> so, um, I thought that was kind of funny too, but yeah, that's you know obviously the '80s are are definitely the the purview of the tight ends, and they've had some some phenomenal ones. Yeah, um, another uh, number that I wanted to point out in the uh, and uh, is the number 83, and um, there weren't a lot of great players with that number. Joe Toledo, as Chris Chris and I mentioned yesterday in the podcast, and that guy who changed his number, but he started off as as a tight end and is Joe Toledo. And he was uh, number 83 to start off, but then changed his number um, and uh, became an offensive lineman and became a really good player um, during his time at the University of Washington. Ended up being taken by, uh, was it the Miami Dolphins? I believe that's true, yeah. Yeah, and he he played a couple seasons there, but just the old bugaboo for him was he just couldn't stay healthy. And uh, as talented as he was, just couldn't stay healthy and and that was a bit of a frustration on his part. Marlon Wood, though, is the guy who kind of stands out for me. And it's only because the poor guy, how many big plays did he have that just ended up coming up short? Um, for and, and he only scored one touchdown at the University of Washington. That was the Hail Mary um, that uh, Carl Bonnell threw to him in at Cal when uh, Tyrone, William, or Tyrone Willingham um, infamously decided to go for one to tie the game and go into overtime. And then Marshawn Lynch scores and drives around on the golf cart or whatever. But, um, you know, Marlon Wood had, I think he had a 90 yard kickoff return, a 55 yard kick or a punt return, an 80 yard, uh, punt return that, and that all of which he was tackled before he was able to get into the end zone. Yeah. I don't remember. It might've been that 2006 season. Cause that was the, 
that was the season where, yeah, he caught the he caught the touchdown, the very final play, and instead of going for two, Willingham went for one, and then uh, you mentioned Marshawn Lynch. Um, that was also the season where they almost won at USC. Uh, I think they lost like twenty six twenty, and then the and there were so many what ifs. There there was a lot of what ifs during that whole season where I believe Marlon Wood had the ninety yard kickoff return in the Apple Cup at Washington State. Uh huh. And that was the one where basically everyone scored like a huge play. Yeah. Like I remember, I think was it Cody Ellis scored yeah. like a sixty seventy yard touchdown pass. Yeah. Um. um who is the who is the wide receiver? Marcel, Marcel Reese. Reese. Marcel yeah. Reese scored like a, a crossing route that he just took and went. He yeah, just Lewis housed Rankin. it, and everyone was like, "I didn't realize he was that fast." Yep. Um. Lewis yeah. Th- like every big play that they had saved up during that season, or almost big play, happened on that day. If I remember correctly, it was kind of it was so out of the blue. It, it just it almost seemed a bit surreal. Um. And and you know I I just uh, I just enjoyed. Uh, talking, I mean, writing about him because I the frustration that guy had to have felt it was you had to believe it was pretty palpable for him. So, uh, let's move on to the uh 70s, Chris. Are there any numbers that stuck out to you as got as numbers that that uh, we need to talk about? Well, I mean, I think when you talk 70s, you're obviously talking about offensive linemen, I mean, for the most part now. For instance, like 79, Dennis Brown was a notable 79. That was a defensive player. But that same number, you had, you know, Ed Cunningham. Um, you had Trevor Highfield, for instance. You had mm-hmm. uh, Coleman Shelton, Randy Vandeveer. For those that kind of remember him, a, a big-time offensive lineman in the 70s. Um, so, you know, th- those were, you know, those were the guys in that particular number. Um but yeah, I mean, you, you think about all the big time offensive linemen typically were wearing 70s, 60s or 50s and, and really doing the, the countdown. I was surprised and I mentioned this in the first one that, that I kind of screwed you a little bit because there weren't that many 60s. But the, 50, <laughs> the 50s and the 70s seemed to be extremely plentiful, you know, like, you know, the 78s, you know, you you, you had, uh, you know, Kurt Marsh, um you know, and that's and again, you had some defensive guys mixed in there, like Mac Tuiaea was in there as well. Um, if you talk about '77, for instance, you've got guys like Don Dow, who was from my hometown, from ba- from Bainbridge mm-hmm. Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably, literally, the only player from Bainbridge Island that's ever done anything uh, at Washington or any other college, for that matter. Uh, but Olin Krutz was obviously a very famous '77. Uh, you even go back to guys like Matt Rogers, who who ended up doing the celebrity TV stuff. Um, he was the transfer from Iowa. And the, the most notable Matt Rogers story that I can remember is that this was early in Rick Neuheisel's tenure. He decided to do fall camp down at the Evergreen State College in Olympia. And so we yeah, would go down there. That. We would go down there and, and stay and, and do a few days and whatnot. And I remember he was, he was doing kind of like, um, you know, like sometimes they'll do a thing where they challenge someone to do something. And if they do it correctly, then the team doesn't have to run or they don't have to do something like a, like a conditioning thing or whatever. And so I think what this one was is that they did lineman punts. So that, so an offensive lineman and a defensive lineman would have to like field the punt. And I remember 
Matt Rogers being the guy that had to like field the punt. And I can remember, I don't remember who the defensive player was, but they, I think the defensive player got it and Rogers didn't, he didn't, he didn't field the punt correctly. And I think the, I think the, the, the thing was, is that whoever, whichever side got the, got the punt correctly was going to get popsicles for like a (laughs) treat at the end of practice. And I think that the thing was that Matt Rogers, even though he didn't, he didn't field the punt cleanly. I think he still, he still went and like got a popsicle or he figured out a way to get popsicles for the offensive line anyways. Cause this is, again, this were, this was like a precursor to like the Matt Rogers we knew on TV was like this smooth talking could kind of work his way into anything and get whatever he wanted. And we, we got a, a little glimpse of that early with this, uh, with him getting the popsicles for the offensive line, even though they didn't, uh, they didn't win the competition. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, 75 is a number that sticks out to me a little bit just because arguably the greatest Husky offensive lineman, Lincoln Kennedy, uh, had that number. Yep. But then you also had DeMarco Farr on the other side. So, and they played on the same team. So you had a 75 on offense that was an all American and, all everything, and he ended up being a first-round draft choice. But DeMarco Farr might have actually had the better pro career. You know, maybe not longer, but he might have had the more impactful pro career. Yeah, and, you know, you look at guys like Aaron Dalen, uh, you know, Mike Sandowski, you know, some of these guys. Um, but you're right. Again, another one of those where there's there's the occasional defensive guy, but it's amazing the, no- the notable defensive guys that wore 70s were really notable. I mean, really notable. Uh, did you, yeah. Did you end up writing about Danny Shelton with 71 or did you just write about him for 55? Well, again, you know, that's okay. one of those recent phenomena yeah. we talked about in the earlier podcast that, you know, this is the thing where some guys had learned about the idea that they could change numbers, hmm. which I don't know if that was just a foreign concept to people before like the start of the, the, the century. I don't know, but, um, yeah, I didn't, I don't, I think I may have talked about it at 55 because that's the number he's known yeah. for. Um, and that's the number that he wore that was a tribute to his, to his brother, Skeevy. Yeah. So, um, but, but he did yeah. wear 71 when he came in. He wore 71 when he started. Yep. That was his number. But, you know, again, you know, you, you, you run down the list 74, you had Alameda Ta'amu, Wilson Afoa. Um, you know, some of these guys in terms of the, the defensive yep. guys that were really standing out, um, you know, frankly, I think the hardest one that was tough to do in with, with the seventies was 73. Um, cause there were some decent players, um, you know, like an Andrew Kirkland, for instance, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but again, the only guy that really, really, truly stood out for me was a defensive player. And he was a heck of a player, Doug Martin. Yeah, that was that was the one that really stood out for me. And that was the one I wrote about the most. Um, but the other guys like 72 pretty much wrote itself because you had Trey Adams. You had um, shoot. You had Kevin Gogan, Micah Hatchie. Yep. Uh, Chris Rongan, Eric Moran, um, Bob Sapp. Obviously, that was mm-hmm. you could write a whole chapter just on Bob Sapp all by himself, especially <laughs> for the stuff that he did after after football. His, yeah, his Washington career with wrestling and boxing and and, and the acting. stuff he did the stuff he did in Japan was pretty legendary. So, yeah, um, yeah I mean, though there there was a lot of guys to talk about in the seventies, which 
like I said, when I started looking at the sixties, I was like, yeah, I kind of, I kind of hosed you a little me. bit. On that. Yeah, you did. You did. You totally did. It's okay. Hey, uh, let's move on to the sixties. The one that really stood out for me was 60, the number 66, Rick Redman. How can you talk about anybody but Rick Redman? I mean, the guy just did everything at the university of Washington during, during his time there was, uh, um, you know, I, the, the thing that stuck out to me was, um, you know, you always think of Washington having all just all these All-Americans and everything like that. But there's a difference between a unanimous All-American, a consensus All-American, and then just an All-American where you're considered an All-American if one publication uh, names you that. But a consensus means that more than three, I think, and then a unanimous is that every one of them did it. Right. So – you know, there, there's different ways. And he was a two-time consensus All-American and he was the first, and he's the only two-time uh, consensus All-American in program history. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, <laughs> not much you could say about him. Uh, that hasn't already been said yeah. in a lot of different ways, for sure. I mean, he's, and again, an, another guy who has, is known for as much as what he did off the field as what he's done on in terms of him being a business leader in the city and um and those types of things so yeah i mean just a guy that's super 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 important to the history of washington football yeah um one number that i need to talk about a little bit and this one it's embarrassing to me as someone who enjoys history especially world war ii history and and early american history and things like that i'm a little embarrassed that i didn't know um the number 65 was worn by vic markov um and that guy I mean, it's unbelievable. If you read some of the some of the things that he went on uh, to do uh, during his life, he was recruited by a um, a doctor, um, and I and I forget what number he ended up wearing, but he played at the University of Washington. He was from the um, Chicago area, and he was of Polish descent, and he had a lot of influence back in the Chicago area because I think he went to he he ended up getting his his uh, medical degree from uh, the University of Chicago and basically was a recruiter for Washington, uh, sending guys from the Chicago area and mostly uh, Polish descendants, but also some Irish guys and things like that. But he sent them all to the University of Washington and they all went on to have great careers. Um, But one of the guys was Vic Markov. Now he wasn't even recruited by Washington that much. His older brother, Ted Markov, uh, was the one that Washington really wanted. And he was a three-year letterman with the Huskies from 33 to 35. But his younger brother was the one who kind of went on to become the big-time guy, Vic Markov. He wore number 65. He was a three-year letterman from 35 to 37 and named part of the program's centennial team as a two-way tackle and was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame in 1976. But the thing is, as great as his college career was, and I don't think you can debate that, Chris, it was what he did afterwards, where he was drafted to go into the NFL by the Cleveland Rams, 26th pick in the fourth round of the 1938 NFL draft. But he only played one season for them, and then enlisted in the the, uh, Army, and was a tank commander and a company commander under George Patton's uh, third army and um, landed at Normandy and went on to earn the bronze purple bronze and purple hearts and five battle stars 
while fighting in the Battle of the Bulge in the Ardan Forest. I mean, just wow. If I could, if there was a guy that I could go back and sit with and and hear stories from, that would probably be my top guy. Yeah, no, I mean, it's pretty impressive. And he clearly was one of the first Washington players to ever get drafted. He was in the only in the second draft class, mm-hmm. uh, 1937, which is the year my father was born. That's that's the first draft class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know which, I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah. that. So, um, you know, it's interesting in the sense that you and again, this is what you you look when you when you're trying to research some of these players that were obviously well before you were born, well before your time. And you start to learn not just about Washington's history, but you start to learn a little bit more about kind of the history of the early NFL drafts, for instance, because it wasn't just the NFL. Guys were getting, you know, drafted to things like the AAFC. Yep. And, you know, and then in the 60s, you got the AFL as well as the NFL. And then, you know, then it really starts to get a little bit nuts. So it's Mm -hmm. there's some definite... Um, weirdness. You talked about Rick Redmond, for instance. Yep. Well, Rick Redmond was a guy that got drafted twice in 1965. He got drafted yeah. in the 10th mm-hmm. round in the NFL by Philadelphia, but then he got drafted in the fifth round by San Diego of the AFL. Mm-hmm. How does that work? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Well, he had his choice where he do? wanted to go. Yeah, but what do you do? Yeah. So whoever offers you the most money, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it's it's absolutely crazy. I mean, you you do you look in the '60s when you had guys that were getting drafted by both leagues at the time. I mean, you talk about you know maybe one of the more impressive guys in the '60s uh, in terms of linemen, guy Ray Mansfield. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he gets drafted in the '63 draft in the NFL in the second round by Philadelphia, but then he also gets drafted in the fifth round of the AF uh, of Denver in the AFL. And it's like, so did they, did they draft on the same day? Did they draft at the, you know, when did they, when would a guy know what to do and how to do it? And and how would you pick one or the other? Because I'm assuming at the time, was there really a cachet issue? Was it more impressive to be an NFL guy as opposed to an AFL guy who was paying better? Um, I, you know, these are all things that I, that are very curious and, and interesting to, to, to learn about as you go on. And I, you know, honestly, it offered up a lot more questions than answers. Uh, Khalif Barnes also wore the number 65. He ended up, uh, um, you know, when, when he was a, when he was a high school recruit, he was actually a defensive guy. He had 120 total tackles and nine sacks a senior season and uh, had offers from most of the PAC 12 as well as some other, uh, what are now FBS programs. And, uh, Signed with Washington in 2000 and uh, and was actually a defensive player for the Huskies, a defensive scout team, uh, you know, the top defensive scout king, team guy. But he eventually moved over to offense and uh, was part of that 2001 Rose Bowl team and uh, went on to start 42 games at the weak side tackle, earning all Pac-12 honors um, in two of those seasons and then was drafted 52nd overall by the Jacksonville Jaguars. And a lot of people didn't know this. He spent 13 seasons in the NFL just retiring after the 2017 season. Wow, that is interesting. Yeah, I mean, just a lot of people didn't know that. So Frank Garcia was a guy who came out of, uh, was it Eisenhower High School over in Yakima? 
think it was I want to say that's correct. I, yeah. I do believe that's correct. Yeah, and he was a four-year letterman at Washington, but he had he had some off-field stuff when he was in in high school and stuff. There was some fear that he was in, he was starting to get involved in the gangs, and his mom wanted him at the University of Washington so he could get away from that. Is that correct? Do you remember that? I don't remember the complete story, but I think that's certainly yeah. Up- yeah. And it ended up um, in practice. And I, I was not covering the team at this point in time. You and Kim have talked about this before, but in practice, he ended up with a pretty gruesome ankle injury um, and was carted off the field by an ambulance in the middle of practice. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Kim, I remember Kim saying that he had he had never heard the screams echo around the stadium like that. Oh, yeah. So. No, I can't. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't want so, to remember those times. Yeah. So on that note, uh, we'll end uh, this part of the podcast. And uh, when we come back, we'll hit the 50s. We just go through all of these these names, all of these teams, um, and, and some of the names that stuck out during our season countdown. You're listening to the guys from Dogman.com on Dogman Radio. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. And welcome back, everyone. We're You're listening to the the k- kind of recap of the season kickoff that uh, Chris Fetters and I did from late May all the way up until kickoff. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a time of year that's a little light on content. And we thought, hey, what better time to get out and start giving some people the history of Husky football and highlighting some of the players that have really made this program into the the top program that it that it is and has been throughout history. And we just uh, wrapped up the 60s. Chris, uh, you had the 50s. Um, we already talked about Danny Shelton at 55, went on to have a really good career at the University of Washington. It, probably one of his most memorable plays was the barrel roll sack that he did against uh Washington State his senior oh, yeah. season. Um, yeah. Just talk a little bit well, about also the also when he wore the lava lava. I think the yeah day before. in the NFL draft. Yeah. Well, and also oh no the, the day, day before, before yeah. the Apple Cup he was in the lava lava and, and it was snowing out and all that. That was interesting. Yeah, and they, and it seems like some of those uh, Islander guys, no matter what the weather was, they were all still in flip flops. And that oh was yeah, no, they didn't. They didn't want to yeah. ever let it be known that the weather was ever going to be a problem. <laughs> um, but one of the things to uh, remember about Danny Shelton that I remember the first memory of was you um, seeing him as a eighth grader. Was that? What, did you see him at a camp as an eighth grader? No, I remember seeing him when he we went to were, Auburn High School. When we were yeah, when we were scouting Auburn High School, and Chris Young was the running back who ended up, I think, at Arizona State, but he originally committed to Washington and um, wasn't able to get in, I think, originally due to some academics. Um, but I remember Danny coming through, and he was maybe a ninth grader or 10th grader at the time, and just seeing him play and going, okay, that guy's obviously got it. Because um, there was there was, enough, there was a couple kids, because Chris Young was in there, and I remember Corey English was playing for Auburn at the time, who's who became Corey Fulvai. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there was a number, you know, Kelly Killsguard. I don't know if you remember him. Yeah, I ended do. up at Stanford. You know, so Auburn was really good at that time and they had some really good players. Um, but Danny obviously stood out and he was a, a obviously phenomenal high school player. And then obviously what happened with him when he tried to come into Washington his first year and that's when his, his brother got shot and and dealing with the, tra- you know, the trauma of that and being able to overcome that and not just excel on the field, but also become a really, really good student and um, really just kind of turning everything um, into his favor and, and, and really having a phenomenal um, Washington experience overall, I think is the thing that I think about when I think about Danny Shelton. Um, let's move to number 58. I mean, one of the, one of the greatest Huskies, um, of recent memory, Caleb McGarry, uh, currently playing with the Atlanta Falcons playing right tackle for them. Um, came in, I remember you and I being down at the, um, Taylor Barton led camp that he had down there, um, at, uh, Skyline uh, down in, down in Vancouver. It was, it's the, I can't remember the name so of the, the stadium. The Kiggins Bowl. The Kiggins Bowl. That's what it is. But it's where Sky, Skyview plays. And uh, he he was currently a freshman um, going into his sophomore year at uh, Battleground High School. We saw this skinny 6'7", probably what, 235, 245-pound guy, somewhere in that range, um, running yeah, around. He was, playing, he was playing defensive line, but he was also playing tight end. Tight end. Yeah. And uh, – um, you know, everybody kind of looked at him and just was like, wow, look at this guy move for that size and, and all that stuff. And everybody told him he was an offensive lineman. He didn't believe us, uh, during the recruiting process, uh, transferred up to five, ended up playing tight end and defensive end for them. Uh, but when he graduated, came down to Washington, came down to, um, Wisconsin and Oregon state. And he chose Washington, uh, chose to stick closer to home ended up uh, switching to offense during his redshirt season and uh, started 40 straight games from 2016 to 2018. He was a two-time All-Pac-12 pick and became a first-round draft choice uh, selected by Atlanta with a 31st pick in 2019. I mean, Chris just, I mean, the guy had an unbelievable uh, Husky career and uh, a guy who has who really made himself because he came from it was his family was not a family of means and he has done very well for himself uh, post post college. Well, and not just that, but um, you know the things that they had worked on their whole lives, like in terms of building their house and things like that. Then there was the fire and all that stuff, which really set them back and and really made it difficult for his family and. And he clearly had his eyes on the prize the whole time. He knew exactly what he wanted to do, what he wanted to get out of his education, and all obviously what he wanted to get out of his the football part of his experience at Washington. But, you know, going back, I mean, the very, very first thing that I remember seeing Caleb McGarry at the Kagan's Bowl um, was that, you know, I was talking and, and to, with Taylor Barton, and Taylor and I specifically asked him to work on or show us some uh, stuff working with uh, with the offensive line and he had never done it before he had never gone into a stance he'd never had to worry about any sort of get off or any of that kind of stuff and you but you could just see the natural ability and you know he still kept playing tight end and and defensive line even when he played at Fife when he moved to Fife and we kept telling him we're like Caleb you know you're a future offensive tackle right 
you've got a chance to be a, a big time tackle in the NFL if you keep growing and you keep doing what you're doing because you you've got the prototypical size and ability to do those things. And he's like, oh, I see myself as a you know defensive player, and I remember you know obviously he signed as a defensive player to start. And then as soon as he got moved over and as soon as he, you know, ended up becoming a three-year, three or four-year starter, was he a four-year starter at right tackle? Uh, yeah, four years. Started he was a four-year starter at right tackle. He, was, he started midway through his, his uh, redshirt freshman like season. Three-and-a-half-year starter? Yeah, three-and-a-half so, years. Yeah. So, yeah, but it's, you know, we, you know, as soon as we caught up with him kind of, you know, in the middle of all that, you know, he kind of looked at us. He's like, yeah, you guys were right. <laughs> <laughs> you knew. You figured yeah. it out. But, well, we, but, uh, but to be fair, we've been very wrong about some of those things, too, because I remember specifically telling Austin Safarian Jenkins he was he was going to be the next DeBrickishaw Ferguson. And that clearly didn't pan out. And he did just fine as a tight end uh, at Washington and and even in the pros. I mean, obviously, he had other things that happened, but he he was able to keep at that weight, which just was amazing to me. I thought for sure he he was going to put on another 30 pounds and just be you know, just this unbelievable left tackle or right tackle, because he could have done all those things. But he was bound and determined to be a tight end, and, and he was absolutely proven uh, proven right. Chris, I'm a little embarrassed to have to say this. You and I talked about Frank Garcia in the 60s. Frank Garcia was actually the center for the uh, Huskies when they won the national title. That's right. Um, in 1991. The one we were thinking of was Juan Garcia. Garcia. Yep, yep Juan Garcia. So I want to make that correction, and I apologize about that. This is what happens when you're kind of just going off of memory and doing some of these things. So well, I will tell you, um, I will tell you, Scott, there was a lot of great 58s. You know, we talked yeah. about Caleb McGarry, but 58, and you know, if we talk about 50s, probably the two 50s that I would have picked would have been 58 and 54. Um, but yeah, you know, you talked about Blair Bush. Blair Bush, arguably the best first kind of big center in the modern era of Washington, and obviously had a phenomenal he was with the the Bengals right he was with yeah Cincinnati. we said we said it was Pittsburgh but it was actually the Bengals yeah, yeah it was Cincinnati Bengals. so he he um you know he, he was, won a Super Bowl with them yeah but you had you know obviously you had Caleb McGarry but you had uh Jeff Palcoa um you know one of the Palcoa brothers Travis Richardson and then even now with Zion Tupola Fatui we know he's going to be a a guy that's going to be in this thing for for uh for many years to come obviously for what he's been doing or 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 going to do uh, once he gets healthy. Um, but yeah, so many, so many guys on that particular number that were great. And then again, 54 was another number that I think, um, you know, you talked a little bit about 55 with Danny Shelton and then, um, you know, um, <laughs> I almost ran into the Michael Jackson trap, but, uh, you know, Rick Mallory, Bruce Harrell, uh, even Troy Fautanu right now, um, yeah. Ryan Bowman, um, so Ricky Andrews is a linebacker back in the day where 55 was, was phenomenal. So that would have been a good number to look at, but 54, um, you know, you go all the way back to Mike Rohrbach, who was, a, who was a captain during the, during the, uh, uh, during the early James years. Uh, and then Dave Hoffman, Inc. Aliaga, you know, two of the, the great all time, uh, linebacker inside linebackers at Washington, uh, would have picked those guys out as well. Phenomenal, phenomenal players. Um, but you even go uh, down to like 52, for instance, and you keep going down. Uh, Haoli Kakaha, who started as Haoli Jamora, and he started with 52 and finished his career wearing eight. So he was one of those guys mm-hmm. in the modern in the last 10 years who's uh, changed numbers. But even like a Jake Eldrin camp, 
um, was a guy who did a phenomenal uh, job at Washington and even hooked up for a few years, I think, with L.A., the L.A. Rams and with uh, Indianapolis. Um, so I know he's still trying to bop around a, a little bit in the NFL as well. Um, and then, you know, the last one, 51, you start to look at guys like, you know, Reggie Rogers, which is almost a which is a um, tragic kind story. Of a tragic but yeah. case. You don't really want to get into that too much, but. He was a guy that had a phenomenal uh, Washington career. Obviously, Dean Kirkland, Jackson Kirkland. You can't talk about fifty-one without talking about the Kirkland boys. Yeah. Um, you know, so that so the, you know, fifties were plentiful. Don't get me wrong. I got, you know, you even look at fifty and and who do we think of when we think of fifty right now? We think of Vita Vea. Yeah. You know, Vita Vea. <laughs> you know, he's going to be on the on this list forever. Um, and but even like Ray Mansfield. You know, I just mentioned him a little while ago. Uh, All American. Uh, lineman back in the 60s um, Dan Lloyd was another guy he was the team captain of Don James's first season in 75 um, I think he finished with over 500 tackles which was you yeah. know which is just ridiculous but yet that's not that's barely good enough to be top three all time when you look at Michael Jackson and David Rill I mean those guys were absolute machines um, so that yeah. those were the guys in the fifties that I think really stood out. And that's going to wrap things up for the first part of our numbers. Look back to the, to the season countdown, uh, list that Chris Fetters and I put together. Hopefully, uh, um, we haven't bored you too much. I hope you have enjoyed some of the, uh, Husky history that we've talked about. There's still a lot left to talk about with the, with the last, uh, the second half of our, of our look at things. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, for Chris Fenners, I'm Scott Eklund. Go dogs. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon. When a thought hits you, I can waste another weekend doing the same old, whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.